Morning. I did not come out today because I have uh, I've been having a kind of a allergy type problem, and uh, I'm afraid if I walk around sniffling, everybody's going to hide under this pew. So I just stayed back there. Okay. Now we are going to continue on uh, in the book of Second Thessalonians. We're still in our hope series, which covers First and Second Thessalonians, uh, and. This is, uh, I'm going to try to go through this briefly, but Paul established this Thessalonian church on one of his missionary journeys, uh, and on this missionary journey, he only got to spend three weeks in Thessalonica because he was ran out, but during that three weeks, he had a huge impact on the Thessalonian people because uh, that young church became very dedicated and very passionate, and uh, he was just so pleased with them. They are so effective, more effective than some churches that have been established for a long time, so because of that, he really wanted to invest uh, more in their spiritual growth, and that's exactly, basically what these two letters were, was him investing in their spiritual growth. Uh, but you'll see in these letters that he invested in this church by encouraging him. Uh, he invested in this church by praising them and by preparing them. Now, he praised them for their faithfulness, and, and he encouraged them to keep up the good work, but what he was preparing them for was the return of Christ, or the rapture. And this was, uh, this was one of those things that he just felt like it could happen any day, and he really was afraid that they were not going to be grasping it, and he wanted to make sure that they understood, listen, you've got to get busy, because any day God could be back, uh, or Jesus could be back. Now, over the last few weeks, Paul's focused on kind of correcting the false doctrines and the false teachings uh, on the rapture. Uh, at, we know at that time they were teaching that, that they had already missed the return of Christ, trying to get in their heads, which wasn't true, so the last few weeks he's been kind of correcting that false doctrine. Uh, but today he's going to move away from that a little bit and kind of focus more on encouraging. Uh, and he's going to encourage his readers by telling them, uh, first of all, who they are in Christ, which is something I think all of us need to remember. Uh, and he also encourages them to remember their spiritual training. So that's why we titled the message today, Remember Your Training. Okay, now we can jump into today's message. Let's start in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, uh, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you, from the beginning, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Okay, this is going to, we got a lot to cover today. So if you're a note taker, great time to take notes, because there's a lot in this. Uh, so Paul basically said, when he said we, he's talking about him and his disciples, right? And he said they should be thankful for the Thessalonians. And he leads off with that. Why? Because God had chosen them, or, you know, had chosen them, the Thessalonians, from the beginning, right? Now, the next and most obvious question is, what did God choose them for? What were they chosen for? Okay, well, Paul said that God chose them for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, capital S, so we're talking about who? Holy Spirit. Did somebody say Jesus? Okay, <laughs> the Holy Spirit, the Sunday school answer again. Um, but uh, it's, the, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so he said that for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So verse 13, now here's where we're going to spend a little time. Okay, verse 13 is often misinterpreted, and most people that misinterpret this do so because they don't understand the definition of three important words, and those three words are chosen. There's a lot of people who don't understand the definition of chosen and that there's more than one definition and more than one uh, usage of it. Uh, the other is salvation, and the last is sanctification. Now, there's an old saying this, and it's, it's really short saying, maybe you've heard it, I think even Rush Limbaugh used to say it, but it's accurate, which I guess that's a terrible reference, but anyway, um, he used to say, words mean things. Isn't that brilliant? Maybe not so much, but anyway, it, it, it actually it makes sense if you think about it, uh, because what he's saying is that you know, it's important that you make sure you understand the definition of words, 
Make sure that the words that you are, especially if you're building a doctrine on it, that you completely understand uh, what it means. Because a lot of false doctrines, I'll be honest with you, got started because people either, um, either took Scripture out of context and built a, a theology on it, or they just didn't understand the words they were reading. They never ran them back to the Greek. They never checked the original language. Uh, so they developed this doctrine or this belief based on a falsehood. So, I mean, it's really important that we understand every term means something. And later in this message, I'm going to, I'll define all three of those, those words that we just spoke about. But first, I want to give you an example of how chosen is misre- misrepresented and, and, uh, and misinterpreted, okay? Now, there's a kind of theology called Reformed theology. Now, I'm just going to put this out ahead of time. Not every Reformed theologist believes the same, but they all have kind of the same, uh, kind of some of the same beliefs. Uh, they usually, Reformed theo- theologians, are, fall into the camp of the Calvinists. Not even going to get on that today. Don't have enough time to get on that, right? But a lot of the Reformed theologians believe that chosen and election are always synonymous or mean the same thing. They think that chosen and election mean the same thing, okay? And some Reformed theologians believe that God chooses or elects people to be saved. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that kind of makes sense. But let me, let me play that, that doctrine the rest of the way out. They believe that they are totally saved by God's choice. They have no say in it. They have absolutely no say in it. God just picks some that they call the elect to go to heaven, and everybody else is going to hell. Right? And if you ask them, well, that doesn't sound gracious, they say, well, the fact that he lets anybody go is gracious because none of us deserve it. You can see why that's a battle we don't want to tackle today. There's a lot there, but I do want to tackle that one, one section there about chosen. Uh, they believe that, that since it's totally God's plan, no one can be saved that was not picked ahead of time. And he, they were not picked because of what he foreknew. According to them, he, he just picked people. He just picked them. And they're the only ones who can believe. That's a messed up doctrine, I'm going to be honest with you. Right? Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this belief, but I want to, I'm going to briefly address a couple things here. John shoots that whole argument down in 1 John. Okay, in 1 John chapter 2, and I don't understand how people can read this and still believe that. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, My little children, I'm writing, you, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Notice that's capitalized. Uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, because the advocate is Jesus. Uh, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of what? The whole world. Okay, now let me break these two verses down real quick so that we can better understand them. There's some really key words here that people struggle with, and I want to break them down. Propitiation. Has anybody ever heard that word and thought, ugh, be honest? It's like that. Sometimes you look at it and you go, what? I don't know what that means. Propitiation means to make atonement for a transgression or to satisfy an unpaid debt or obligation. That's what propitiation means. That's how it's used in the scriptures. So uh, when Jesus died on the cross, he made atonement for all of our sins, right? He sacrificed himself on that cross to satisfy our sin debt with God. He paid our sin debt in full with God when he died on that cross. So Jesus made propitiation in that he atoned for our sins when he died on that cross. Okay, so that explains that. Now, it says he made propitiation for our sins. Okay, now, who is our? Now, this is referring to the recipients of John's letter, which was believers. It's so important we understand that. Who is the audience? Because a lot of times, if, if he is writing to 
believers, there's certain things you can take out of your explanation of what he's saying. If you have an explanation for scripture that's speaking to believers, and that explanation has something to do with unbelievers, you know you're out of context, right? This was written to believers, all right? It's just obvious. And it says, and not for ours only. Again, he's referring to the believers. He, he made propitiation for, this, for our sins, believers, and not for our sins only, right? Now, notice that he uses we and our a lot in these verses. And he, the reason he does that is he is saying that like him, they believed. So he's putting them with them by using those pronouns. He's saying, we, our, we are believers. He's grouping them together. That's who he's talking to. And he says, so not only for believers, it's almost like he knew this doctrine was going to come someday. He goes, it's almost like God inspired it. Weird, right? And he says, but not, uh, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, if you ask a Reformed theologian, well, it says not for the sins of the whole, uh, but also for the sins of the whole world. They will say, well, that means the elect world. And I'm like, you can't stick words in there that are not in there. You know what I mean? You, well, stick monkey in there if you're going to do that. What's it matter? You know what I mean? You're just sticking made up words in there. It doesn't say that. Okay? What it says is that not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. Uh, so when he said also, you know he's addressing a different group of people. He said he made propitiation for our sins and also, now he's shifting off of our right, off of our, and talking about a different group of people, and this was the unbelieving world, right, and when he says for the, that he also made propitiation for the sins of the world, the word world in the Greek is kosmos, sound familiar? Kosmos, and what that means is, if you look in this context, it means the entire, all the people of the entire world, that's what it means, that's the definition, so it kind of knocks out anything else, all right, so that's not what he was saying, so Jesus made atonement for everyone when he died on the cross, but there are some people who just will refuse to believe, right? Now, is that because he doesn't want them there? No, he died so they could believe. Their sin is already paid for. They just have to accept the payment. And that is so dumb, because think about this. If you had a paycheck waiting at work that you already earned, would you go get it? You'd go get that, wouldn't you? What if they said, I'm going to give you a paycheck you did nothing for? An extra 40 hours. Would you go get that one? If not, I'll get it for you. Right? That's the same thing. Jesus has given the world, if you will, a paycheck that we did not earn in that he paid for the world's sin. Just some people haven't accepted it. Right? So, I don't, obviously, I don't agree with this theology. And trust me, it was really tempting for me to go in more depth in this and go into the entire uh, doctrine of the Reformed theology, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I don't agree with this theology, but that's a whole other sermon. Today, I just want to show that in verse 13, this can't be used to support that theology. And believe it or not, some Reformed theologians will say, well, if you look in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 13, it talks about God choosing them. Well, I'm going to shoot that down. That is not what this is saying. Okay, the Greek word for chosen uh, used in verse 13 does not translate election. Matter of fact, this is only used three times in the New Testament, the Greek word here for chosen. It's kylorelomai is the word. Remember that. We're going to be tested on that. Make sure you can spell it right. I didn't. But um, that's the Greek word. And it does not translate to elect. It's only used three times. Right? If you look at this, it's, it's used in Philippians chapter 1, verse 22, when he says, But if I am to live on, uh, on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. Does that sound like election? I don't know which to elect. <laughs> it's not what it means. Uh, and again, he used it in Hebrews eleven twenty five. 25. Uh, it says, 
choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So in both of those references and in verse 13, that's the only three times that Greek word is used. That's it. And none of them have anything to do with election. So the argument that that is synonymous with election just won't hold up in the Greek. Everybody still with me? Are you following me? Are you lying? Okay, good. Just making sure. All right, now, uh, as we'll see here in a minute, verse 13 also has nothing to do with salvation of the soul. Okay, which is, I'll explain that. Let's take a look at this, verse 13 again. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Okay, chosen, as it's used here, simply means God selected them for a purpose. Okay, he chose you, meaning he selected them for a purpose. The phrase from the beginning is kind of interesting here, because in the Greek, it's a parhe, and a parhe literally means first fruits. First fruits, it's kind of translated wrong here, right? It means first fruits. From the beginning should say first fruits. We'll look at that here in a minute. Because Paul meant since they believed, they were the first fruits of the gospel. Now, do you remember what first fruits means? They got that, that saying because when they would have a harvest, they would go out. The first fruits were the first ones to pop up in the new season. They were excited to see the first fruits of the harvest. The ones that popped up and started blooming first. So they took that and moved it into it, kind of used it as a saying, right? Because he's saying they were the first to believe the gospel in that area and to be committed to Jesus. Uh, and their commitment was the fruit of their dedication and their faith. So they were the first to believe that and to produce fruit of their belief Called them the first fruits. So now let's look at those definitions, right? I already defined chosen. Let's look at salvation and sanctification. Okay, sanctification is from the, the Greek word hagiasmos, and it means to set apart for, or, or to consecrate for service. To set apart or consecrate for service. Now there are two kinds of sanctification. And you ever notice Christians love to throw that word around? Sanctified. How many people heard that? You know what I mean? They, we love to throw that around. It makes people shout, and they don't even know what it means. Right? It just sounds like a word you should holler after you hear it. Right? But there's two kinds of sanctification. There's positional and there's conditional sanctification. Positional sanctification is the moment you believe, God sets you apart for heaven. You are on the track for heaven. You can't be pulled off. You are pulled apart from the world, the unbelieving world, and now you are destined for heaven, and nothing's going to change that. You are positionally a child of God who will be in heaven. That's the first sanctification. That's positional sanctification. All right? Now, conditional sanctification has more to do with us setting ourselves apart. See, God promised that if we would be faithful and we would do the things he asked us to do and be obedient, that he would bless us for that obedience. So he sets those who are faithful apart, there's where the definition comes in, for special blessing, conditioned upon what you're doing. See what I mean? It's about what you do. This isn't about salvation. This is about are you doing the things that God can bless you for, that he said he would bless you for. Because he's always promised that the people who set them aside for service will be blessed. So what Paul was saying here was those who are committed to serving Jesus after believing the gospel are blessed and set apart to accomplish good works for God. That's all that means. Everybody with me on that? It's not as confusing as it sounds. It's, it's just we've made it confusing. Now the word salvation when you hear salvation, I get it. We automatically think it means being saved, right? I mean, that's the shortened version of it. It means being saved. But salvation doesn't always refer to regeneration or being saved. As a matter of fact, 
After the book of John, it rarely does. Okay, it's, it, remember, salvation doesn't always mean, it's not always talking about eternal life. Uh, in verse 13, salvation is a Greek word, soteria, and it just means deliverance. That's it. It means deliverance. It doesn't have to be deliverance of your soul. It just means deliverance, right? Now, it's really important you understand that. So what Paul was saying was that the Thessalonians were being delivered, but what were they being delivered from? Okay, and I, this question has been asked time and time again. So they were being delivered. Think of the context. What has he been teaching them about for the last two chapters? The coming of the Lord, the rapture, the people who have been teaching them that it already happened, trying to get them to quit looking forward to it. All he's been talking about is the rapture, when the Lord's going to come back, prepare for the Lord coming back. That's all he's been talking about. So when he says that they were going to be delivered, he was talking about being delivered from the tribulation. Because it stays in context here. It, these people were already saved, so salvation couldn't be of their soul. They're already saved. I mean, he's been bragging on them for two books now, right? So we can't be talking about salvation of the soul. It's a deliverance is what that word means. And they were being delivered from the tribulation period. That's the context all the way through chapter 2. Uh, and now it says they were going to be delivered through sanctification. Okay, so let's take a look at this. So what does chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, remember that's Holy Spirit, mean? Okay, so those who believe are chosen to be delivered from the tribulation because they have set themselves apart in believing and continue to set themselves apart by their faith in Christ. They are positionally and conditionally sanctified and they set themselves apart. So to recap, Paul is just referring to delivering them from the tribulation period because the context hasn't changed. And those who believe the gospel were the first fruits of the New Testament church, the first ones to step out and really teach and share this gospel and see other people believe. So he was really admonishing, or he was actually encouraging them and saying, listen, you guys are doing a great job. But know this, the reason you're not going to hell is because you believed in Jesus saved you. And the reason you're set apart for heaven and going to be delivered from the tribulation period is because you believed and Jesus saved you. Right? But... All the good things you do, God is going to bless that, and he's going to talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, I don't want to spoil that, but he's going to talk about that in a minute. But the cool thing is, is we have the same promises. When we're reading this stuff, we think, wow, God was so pleased with them, and he made all these great promises. Those promises weren't just to them. Those promises are to us. Here's the thing. God still says that the person who trusts Jesus Christ for their eternal life is sanctified, Positionally, you are going to heaven and you are going to miss the tribulation. Now, a lot of people want to argue that point, and I will allow them to be wrong. But the truth is, we are going to miss the tribulation period because we have been sanctified positionally through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's something I don't understand. People complain to me if God doesn't do everything they want Him to do, they whine if God doesn't answer their prayers the way they want. I've even had people tell me, I just don't feel like God does anything for me. He doesn't listen to me. He's not doing things the way I want. And I can't help but look at him and go, well, I kind of disagree. Because the moment you believed, he guaranteed you'd go to heaven. I think that's a big get, don't you? I think that's a big one. He's also made promises that if you continue to serve him after being positionally sanctified, then he will also bless you in this world and in the next world. So I don't understand why people feel like just because God doesn't jump when they snap that he's not doing things for him. If God never does another thing for me, if you knew who I was before, you'd understand why I'm so passionate about this, right? I wasn't, in, I wasn't a choir boy growing up, trust me, you know? And if you knew who I was before, you would understand. If God does nothing else for me, he's done enough. If my life has no blessing ever again, and it's a hard life, and I'm broke, sounds a lot like my life. Anyway, no, if I'm broke, and, you know, if I'm in conflict with other people, none of that matters. 
Sure, I would like that not to be the case, but the fact remains, giving me eternal life and promising me I'll never have to go through the tribulation period kind of seems like a big deal to me. Doesn't it you? That should excite us. Listen, God promised you heaven. Listen, this government can take everything you have, your bank accounts, your cars. It can take everything you have except your salvation. That's yours. And the government can imprison you for it. They can, they can persecute you. They can kill you for your faith. But if they do, they're just sending you home to be with Jesus because they cannot take that promise away from you. We are positionally sanctified. We are going to be in heaven. We are going to be delivered from the tribulation period. And I think that's so powerful. Now, I don't want to get tied up on that. Let's move on. Uh, starting in verse 14. It says, It was for this uh, he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's important. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So Paul said that God called them through the gospel. Now listen to this. It said to gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he called them to gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's this talking about? We're shifting right back into conditional sanctification. He's saying, I called you through the gospel, not just so I could save you, not just so I could you know, keep you from going through the tribulation period. I'm giving you the opportunity to be glorified with Christ. And what that means is, one of these days, he's going to start that kingdom that he's promised us, that thousand-year reign. And those who are faithful will have the opportunity to serve in that kingdom. And that will be being glorified because when Jesus is glorified in that kingdom, he is king of kings, lord of lords. He will reign with, uh, with no one questioning him for a thousand years or, or no one overtaking him for a thousand years, rather. And that's him being glorified for his works. He's saying you can be glorified like that because if you're faithful, not only will he bless you here. See, I, I could get it if people would say, well, the only thing we have to look forward to is serving in the kingdom. That's not it. Listen, he will bless you here when you're faithful, but most importantly, you'll be glorified by being able to serve in that kingdom. Now, there are Christians that's going to go into the kingdom that didn't do anything, right? And I get it. People see that and they go, well, that's not fair. They didn't do anything. Well, they believed and Jesus did something and they believed in what he did and that's enough to get them to heaven. It's not enough to let them serve or be glorified, right? So they basically have to sit the bench. I'm a coach. That's the way I think about it, okay? They're going to have to sit the bench for a thousand years. I have parents complain if their kids sit for five minutes. You know what I mean? They're going to sit for a thousand years. And I don't know about you guys. How many people tried out for a sport in high school or college and said, gosh, I hope I sit the bench? Anybody do that? Coach, what do I have to do to get left bench? Nobody does that. You go because you want to play, right? I want to serve in that kingdom. I want to do that. I, I don't care what I do in the kingdom. I'm not picky. I don't care. I'll be the toilet cleaner in the kingdom. Because by then I'll be glorified, maybe I won't smell it. I don't know, but I'm just saying. I want to serve in that kingdom. I don't want to set the bench. I'm a competitor, right? And that's what he was talking about there, about gaining that glory. Paul also told him that he wanted him to stand firm. And here's where it gets a little tricky. He says, and hold to the traditions that you were taught. Now, he is not talking about the Jewish traditions. He's not talking about the pagan traditions. Why would he tell them to hold fast to something he had been teaching them for years to run from? Not what he's talking about. The traditions they were taught is referring to what he's been teaching them through both of these books. They were taught about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and when it's going to happen and who's going to go with him when he comes back. The traditions he's telling them to remember was what he taught them about the return of Jesus and the rapture. He's saying, don't let anybody deceive you. Remember, there were people going around saying, that Paul's crazy. Jesus already came back. You're in the tribulation, son. There were people teaching that. 
And he was saying, don't believe that. He said, don't believe that. Remember what we taught you, whether we told you in person or whether we told you through a letter. Remember what we told you and hold on to that. Because listen, the only thing that matters is the truth. He's saying, hold on to the truths that you were taught. Think about it. Had they believed that the rapture had already happened, would that change the way they served? Absolutely. Because during that rapture, I mean, during that, that 70th week or that you know, tribulation period, it's going to kind of be every man for himself. I mean, the, the Antichrist is going to be out trying to kill people, so I don't think evangelism is going to come easy for many people, right? So, I mean, it's going to be difficult during that time frame. That would change the way they serve. And he's saying, don't buy into that. You've been faithful. You've been doing great. Don't buy into that trash. Well, he didn't say trash. That's my version, but that's what he was saying. Now, this is still true because it is tough to stay focused in this world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you, and especially... There's certain times of the year it's tougher to pay attention. Am I right? Elections. Right? I mean, everybody's fighting with each other. You can't turn the TV on without hearing stupid ads. And does anybody notice that in the election ads, nobody talks about what they're going to do? They just bash the other person? So we're like, let's elect the best basher. I don't understand. <laughs> you know, but during that time, it's easy to get you know, our focus off. It's easy you know, to get our focus off when we're going through struggles. There's all kinds of times it's just difficult to stay focused. But if you want to, the same is still true. Paul said, here's how you stay focused. Remember what you were taught. So he was saying, remember the word, which means you need to know it, right? He's saying, remember the word that we taught you. Look in 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 15. This is one of my favorite passages. Paul says, be diligent to present yourself, what? Approved. Approved to God. So he's saying, here's how you are approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling what? The word of truth. The same is true still to this day. If you want to stay focused on God, stay focused on his word. Stay focused on his word. You can't do Christianity without the Bible. I'm sorry. Now, people get mad when I say that. I've actually had people say, I get tired of you saying we need to read our Bible all the time. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you want from me. You know, that's like going to your doctor and saying, I'm sick, you give me medicine. I mean, you came to me because you were sick, Right? Same thing, listen, believers, the Bible and Christianity, they go together. One is not a suggestion, right? We know about our faith through the Word of God. So the Word of God is so, so important. If you want to stay focused, stay focused on God through His Word. This world is always trying to tell us that God isn't real. It's always trying to tell us it's a waste of time. I have never witnessed so many TV shows as there are now that literally mock God and religion and everything wholesome. Has anybody noticed that? Commercials, man, make me want to puke. Can I say puke? I guess I just did. You know what I mean? It's true. I, I, don't, I don't understand. It's almost like they're trying to make you ashamed to say you're a believer. They're, they're, they're almost afraid. They want you to be afraid to admit it. But you know what? Here's the truth of the matter. It's the only thing that lasts the test of time. So I don't know why we'd be afraid to mention that, Right? If you want to be blessed in this world and in the next, it's the same thing. Paul's saying, remember what you were taught. Now, in the end here, verse 16 and 17, I love what he's saying here. He says, uh, now may the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and, and uh, God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. So basically, this is kind of a prayer of blessing upon uh, you know, the Thessalonians during the trouble they were experiencing. 
And he said he, he prayed that they'd be comforted with the hope they get from grace. Remember what hope means in the Greek? Confidence. He's saying be comforted in the confidence you have that God will keep his word. The confidence you have that his grace guaranteed you eternal life. Remember that. Be confident in that. Right? And, and no matter what the enemy tells you will make you happy, it won't if you don't have this relationship. And anything that the world tells you will make you happy doesn't last very long. And like, for instance, money, possessions, all those things. I'm not against them. I wouldn't mind having more of them. But I'm just saying, those things, making that the focus of your life, will never make you truly happy. Possessions get old. You, can, you know the most, the most luxurious of homes in the 1800s are dilapidated and falling to pieces now right? Some of the nicest cars in the 60s. You know why it's hard to find a restored car? Because they've all rotted in junkyards somewhere, right? These are the highest dollar of cars. The boats, they're destroyed, right? Jobs come and go. Money comes and goes, right? But the only thing that doesn't come and go is the promises God's made you. They stay the same. I have seen so many people, I've counseled so many people who have everything that the world tells you would make them happy. And I have these conversations all the time. They have money, they have vacation homes, they have status in the community, they have power, they have everything. And people see them and go, gosh, I want to be them. I don't say anything because I'm not allowed to. But I want to look at them and say, you do not want to be them. You don't want to be them. I'm counseling them. You know, here's, here's what they don't tell you. Uh, those couples got those things, and most of them had to pay a great price for them that they wish they hadn't paid. For instance, yeah, they've got all those things, but it might have cost them their relationship with their spouse because it takes a lot of time to make a lot of money, right? Or it might cost you relationships with your children. I never forget, I met with a man who was very wealthy, and he said, I wish I had stopped all this stuff back when I was younger. He said, I would rather have less and have my kids get to know me. He said, now I see these grown-ups that I barely know, but hey, I was able to give them all the financial stuff they needed, but he had no relationship with them. The price was just too high. You know what I mean? I've seen people lose relationships with friends. I've seen people fall out of their, the, their churches and their faith. They're still going to heaven, but they've dropped away from it because they're too focused on making money. And the end of time, I, and listen, here's the way it works. I have been at many a bedside when people are dying. I have never had anyone ask me about money, ever. Not even about what their kids are going to get. Because <clears throat> people say, oh, when I'm dying... I want to make sure all my stuff's in order and my kids get what I want to leave to them. Listen, here's what my kids get, my debts, right? So, but, you know, when they get to those bedsides, you know what? I've never, that's never even been mentioned, ever. 27 years of ministry, never have I heard anyone worried about their 401k, their vacation homes. I've never seen them worried about their properties, their bank accounts. None of that matters. And what matters in the last seconds is what Paul was trying to get them to focus on here. Your relationship with God. That's what matters. Wealth is too fleeting. In Proverbs 23, starting in verse 5, I love how the author of Proverbs says this. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Notice he said weary yourself. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. So basically he's saying don't waste your time trying to get wealthy. Don't even think about it. I'll give you what you need, what I want you to have. Verse 5. When you set your eyes on it, it is what? Gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. People say, I don't believe that. Well, go back and read what happened to the rich people in the 20s. They were jumping out of windows because they lost everything in a day. Millions. 
in a day. So I, I think that is so smart. So I, one of the things that I try to tell people, Paul is trying to keep these people from getting sidetracked with things that don't matter. That's still true today. Here's what doesn't matter. Your political affiliation means nothing to God. I know you might be proud of it. God bless you. Be what you want. It's up to you and him. But that's not what makes God proud. He's not going to say, gosh, I'm so glad you made it, Chris. You're a great Republican. He doesn't matter. I'm not. But, you know, he's, that doesn't matter. He's not going to say, well, I'm glad you're here. You really did the Democratic Party well. I'm not, nor did I. But he doesn't care. You know, when you get there, the only thing that matters is, is, is the blood of my son applied to you. That's it. It's not like they're going to go, Woo, Chris is here. We've been waiting for you. You're awesome. It has nothing to do with me. He's going to say, you are in here by the grace of my son. You didn't accept him. That's all that matters. None of the other stuff matters. It's all fleeting, right? So Paul wanted him to know that, listen, don't let any of this distract you. You have been chosen. You're set aside for heaven. And you're chosen to have a great blessing if you can stay, if you can stay faithful and just remember your training. And that's what he was trying to tell him. I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week. We have a lot to cover next week, too. So if you would, I'd ask you, please bow your head. We'd like to give a brief invitation every time. If there's someone here who's not sure where they stand or just need prayer, I do pray for you. Just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. And I'm going to pray. Bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down or email you. I really pray for you. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. Believers, when we read books like this and teach through books like this, you know I'm going to be praying for us. There's so much for us to do. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the love and mercy you've shown all of us. I just thank you for your grace. As we study how powerfully you moved in the New Testament church, we see that when the odds look 100% against you, you beat the odds, and you elevated the people of faith to a position of power and safety in you. And you still do that today. And I'm so thankful it's not because we deserve it. I'm so thankful it's not because we're wealthy or not because of what people think of us. It's just because we believed in your son. I can't understand how you can love people who reject you all the time, but I'm thankful you do. And if there's someone who hasn't believed, I just pray that whatever's holding them back, you move it out of their mind and let them know that you died so that whosoever will believe that what Jesus did was enough could have eternal life. And if they believe that, I just pray they contact us. But Lord... I believe the time is short and there are so many people out there that need reached and the enemy's working so hard to keep us focused on everything that will keep us from doing that. Let our first priority, Lord, be to serve you. Let us trust you first and let you provide everything else we worry so much about because we know that the only thing that really satisfies is a relationship with you and faith in you and your word. Give us the strength to be the believers you designed us to be. We just ask that you'd go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. And if you don't return before we meet again, we pray we would come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.